My name is Michael Lilienthal, and I am your host this evening for our podcast, Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. We don't talk about Scotch, though. We talk about books. And with me this evening is my guest, my victim, Ethan Bartlett. Yeah, hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett, and... <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if this is, like, a reference to something. Like, it it has a little bit of, like, Twilight Zone or even Alfred Hitchcock Presents (laughs) vibes. Yeah, I'm just going for the vibe, you know. I don't know if if you guys have ever seen Alfred Hitchcock Presents. These coming out in October, and so it's, like, it's gotta be spooky, right? Like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but he would always just, like kind of like in the twilight zone you know is this this anthology series of like like spooky or or horror or thrillery kind of shows and it would always just be like uh you know the doll girl and then he'd like have like a creepy doll that he was just holding in his arm and kind of rocking like it was a baby and he'd just be like this episode is about a little girl who got a little too carried away with her make-believe dolls or something and it's just like (laughs) al what are you doing that's kind of the vibe i'm getting from you right now yeah that's the vibe of of the podcast and and it's the vibe of see it's not the vibe of the podcast (laughs) you are objectively wrong about that uh the book thing and the october thing i find it more difficult to argue with you about but like i was just trying to branch out want to be different and i don't like change personally <laughs> like i hate change and so i'm not uh, really on board with it like to me we should still six years and oh however many episodes it is uh we should ew. still be discussing south of the border west of the sun by haruki murakami <laughs> like that's how much i hate probably change. could be i mean we certainly could be if we really wanted to to go that route but we could just do a bi-weekly podcast ad nauseum <laughs> reviewing that book so like the fact that i have allowed but... us to change books period while keeping everything <laughs> else exactly the same always like that's that's already like a stretch on my part and now you're trying to like go for different creepy vibes and and using the phrase branching out, which I hate. It's one of my least favorite sounds <laughs> in the English language. Oh, uh, fine, fine. Well, because you're you're so happy settling and not changing, we're not going to change the scotch we're drinking either. Oh, neat. We're going to keep drinking. Yeah, you should drink it neat. Um, (laughs) i i have to admit that's very good and it infuriates me that you've forced me to admit that uh (laughs) though it is good that we're not switching the scotch because like i have way more of this scotch than i usually do on a on a second episode (laughs) why is that ethan uh it's probably a because i'm scared of it so i don't want to like drink it (laughs) so fast that i would offend the scotch but also b i'm scared of it because it is a Roughly 120 proof scotch, and uh, that's, you know, makes me more scared and hesitant to imbibe it quickly. Probably wisely so. Uh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that's smart. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. It it is 
the Glenlivet Nadura uh, edition. Um, the the bottling I have is the Oloroso matured uh, single malt. And Ethan, would you remind the listener what yours is? Mine is just uh, matured in first fill American white oak casks, which I think is sort of yeah. the default, you know, default basic version. Uh, the Oloroso is probably slightly rarer and slightly more, probably slightly more interesting for that matter, but. My, uh, You're just so basic. Yeah, I, I tried to find the Oloroso cast because it sounded interesting, and uh, my local liquor store that I w- In fact, the one local... I went to several local liquor stores. None, some of them hadn't even heard of it or couldn't even, you know, flirt with it. Um, one took my name and number and uh, never called me back, so I just went ahead and uh, acquired this one. Um, you mean they ghosted you, Ethan? All they right. Ghosted you? All right. <laughs> Don't make me hang up this uh this this uh video call. Then I'm just gonna. Ha- then I would just have to talk into a microphone for fifty four more minutes about what I thought you might be saying. And that would be even more of a nightmare to edit than the time I lost my audio and just. Oh. re-recorded it in reaction to your previously recorded audio. That was wild. It was, was yeah, wild. It was a wild episode. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. I don't want to like delay I... us drinking this scotch some more any any longer. No, you should uh, get your wife over here to read us the rules. Hey wife. Would if I said I loved you, would you read the rules? You're right, that's not a good pickup line. <laughs> Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, gentle listener. Thanks, dear. I do love you. Also, you're in St. Louis right now, so I'm not sure how you read the rules. Anyway. She's just that talented. Yep. Uh, with that, let's uh, get this show on the road.
Skunk. Schlank. Now, you wanted to bait me or something last time, Ethan. And so I want to give you the same bait, sort of, in reverse. Uh, for this book, The House on Vesper Sands by Parik O'Donnell, uh, you said it was a, a redux or sequel sideways to uh, The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. Defend yourself. Um, <laughs> I would like to say <laughs> that, well, you've sort of gotten the vibe of what I said last... No, I, said, <laughs> I was going to accuse you of putting words in my mouth, but I literally called this The Devil in the Dark Water Syndicate as an Assassin's Creed it's joke. Um... So it's like, I can't even, I can't even accuse you too much of putting words in my mouth. It's just the way you phrased the words I said, I liked less than the way I phrased the words what, that I said. Mostly, what I want to know, Ethan, is have you stopped beating your wife? Uh, I would like to invoke the Third Amendment and <laughs> refuse to quarter troops in my house. Um... <laughs> Because uh, the one about not having to answer questions about whether you beat your wife is, of course, the Fifth Amendment. Um, <laughs> but anyway, here we are. Uh, okay, so yeah, uh, I, I guess mostly, mostly what I meant by these jokes is that uh, to me there were a lot of parallels that I drew. I guess more on a meta level, though. Maybe, maybe there's some like plot and character and characterization and almost certainly some world building parallels within the texts themselves but between the house on vesper sands and uh the devil in the dark water which was the devil in the dark water your last entry for this podcast michael other than because we that's a very good possibility i think it might have been uh, you know, unless you're counting like us agreeing on Gargantua and Pantagruel, because I think mm -hmm. Devil in the Dark Water was your last book that we did before Gargantua and Pantagruel. This would be a really easy thing for me to look up quick and like even edit out the time the that it took me to look it up, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway. Um, it is, yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Um, I guess I'll just start on the surface level of the parallels, like the very, you know, very obvious sort of a, a surface level ones and try to sort of go progressively deeper from there. Um, on the surface level, just these books are both published within like a year or so of each other, I want to say. Um, a year or two anyway, because, uh, yeah, The House on Vesper Sands is, is oldest copyright I can see is 2021. Um, mm -hmm. and then I believe Devil in Dark Water was published in somewhere between 2020 and 2022. I can't remember specifically. Um, uh, I don't remember either. At the earliest, it was, it was 2020. So, you know, yeah. obviously very, very similar, especially as far as like literary moments go. Um, right. 
And both of them, of course, have to do with a period in history. So, you know, they're historical fiction. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, whatever sort of else, uh, uh, you know, you might say about them. There certainly are historical fiction um, mm-hmm. as far as genre goes. Uh, they both even, as I was, as I was like, we were kind of setting up to do this podcast, I glanced at afterward in acknowledgments, uh, uh, in this book, which I don't think I read when I originally read this book. Um, but the, the very first paragraph of that mentions that passenger carriages with side corridors, uh, Mm -hmm. were in use since the 1880s, um, and sort of the specific design that he uh, O'Donnell includes in this book is something that's not in use till 1893, um, which is slightly earlier than this book takes place, or slightly later rather than this book takes place. And he says this minor historical liberty is the only one I have knowingly taken. And uh, uh, yep. um, Stuart Turton, thank you. Uh, con- has a very similarly like wry confessional historical liberty based uh, uh, part at least part or parts of his afterward to Devil in the Dark Water, um, which is I I don't mention that just just to point out that I'm very good at at noticing detailed parallels, but just to say that like it to me points to a very similar sensibility on both authors parts um right and you know what that what that means what you extrapolate from that similarity is is uh uh you know i I don't i don't want to necessarily go too far down that rabbit trail but it's interesting um but more sort of to the uh as gertrude says uh more matter with less art um is a uh the idea that again both of these books like i mentioned take place in in sort of a historical setting um constructed from a 21st century perspective but also uh they um they they both have to do with sort of an intersection of history with the potential of the supernatural and of uh um mm. elements that of the of a story that themselves on a surface would be more like fantasy uh elements um mm-hmm. and they both for a large part of the book uh definitely have to do with the ambiguity of an apparent phenomenon, an apparently supernatural phenomenon, and the question of what that means, what the explanation is, um, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I guess spoilers for both books, but if you're this far in the podcast, oh man, we didn't give the oh! listener a chance to read oh. this book last time. <laughs> Well, no, we didn't. I hope if you were interested in reading this book, you just pause the podcast on our on your own without us telling you to. Um, yeah, wow, we didn't do that at all. I feel like it's probably too late Ooh. now. Uh, yep. Anyway, 
But yeah, spoilers for both books, though. If you are this far in the show, you should have at least read Devil in Dark Water. And like, you've, I, I would say you've probably read this book if you were interested in not having spoilers. But, um, yes, the endings of the books diverge wildly. Like so far, there's been a set of oh, yeah. generalizations that I can sort of make about them that like both uh you know uh make sense and apply to both novels and then the the climax like what what a, a screenplay class would call the third act of both of these novels is where they diverge wildly and we you know we talked about how this novel ends at the end of the our previous episode um but in in the parallel that I'm drawing, it's like the devil in dark water takes everything and and does the hound of the Baskervilles thing where there's a completely sort of naturalistic explanation for pretty much all of the data of the book, whereas the house on Vesper Sands basically right. does the opposite of that. It just gets weirder and weirder, and at no point is there really an explanation or even like a systematization of uh yeah of what happens like. You mentioned, you know, in the last episode that uh, Dracula involves sort of the character of Van Helsing kind of trying to systematize or or scientifically observe um, what the deal with vampires is. And again, this book kind of goes the opposite of that route, where it's like the world yep. is more mysterious at the end of the book than it is at the beginning of the book, um, mm -hmm. meaning that, like... Where, where the Hound of the Baskervilles and in its tradition, the Devil in the Dark Water, you know, sort of the world is less mysterious or more explicable at the end uh, of the book yeah. than the beginning. Again, this book does the opposite. And in that sense, to like resume our endless discussion of genre from last episode, like I would say it's a more true gothic novel than like, a lot of other books, especially in the 21st century, that get called gothic, that just kind of have, like, a mm -hmm. big spooky house or, you know, something yeah. that, like, has general gothic vibes but really kind of diverges from the vibes after that or something. Definitely. Definitely. I, I, I do want to talk about the ending some more here because that's where I, or at least the lead up to the yeah. ending... Um, there were certain points at which I was definitely getting some Devil in the Dark Water vibes. Right, yeah, that's... Specifically... Go ahead. And I'm using the word vibe again <laughs> way too many I mean, times. Uh, but we should just commit to it at this it, point. Like, once you're, once you're discussing the gothic genre and it's 2022, vibe is an unavoidable <laughs> Vibe. <laughs> like if we if we made um, no saying the word vibe a rule on this podcast this book would make us both lose repeatedly definitely definitely um but specifically in the sense uh of something i was expecting this book to do which it kind of does by the end um but not to the total commitment that devil in the dark water does is create the illuminati basically <laughs> um so the the devil in the dark water ends with the the group of main characters basically forming a superhero team right. that uh, is going to direct uh civilization for uh the greater good. And I mean, um my only objection to that 
characterization of the word civilization. I don't know that their plans are necessarily that grandiose. Sure. But I, in the interest of not appearing pedantic, I will yeah. allow it. Uh-huh. Thank you. I appreciate your allowance <laughs> here. Um, and, and I was expecting something similar and perhaps something more systematizing yeah. uh, in in relation to that at the end of this book, but that doesn't really happen. Like you get the, the three main characters of Cutter, Gideon and Olivia kind of having a, a relationship at the right. end, which they don't like, none of them knows the, uh, uh, another at the right. beginning. Um, and they, they get to know each other. Um, Cutter and Gideon earlier on, and then Olivia and the other two, um, she joins in pretty close to the last end, few right? chapters. Yeah. Um, like you've kind of been following her along, but she's like the B story until she gets tied in at the end. Um, but then, uh, yeah, so I was expecting them to converge and systematize everything. Right. And, um, then create the anti-spiriters basically, (laughs) because the spiriters are, are the, the, the looming threat um throughout the book um but then even even with the spiriters too like once lord strife who's who you never meet right <laughs> you never meet him right. in the entire book right. but he's like the big bad he's he's the joker pulling the strings right. um behind the scenes everywhere yeah. Kaiser it's like so oh man use yep. a slightly earlier uh, uh there you go film analogy um, but when, when like, it's like, oh man, when he shows up, things are going to go down and he's killed off screen. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> by, by the, the half shade of Angie Tatton. Um, and that was a point at which I started to really, once again, feel the unmooring of the book. Yeah. That like, even the rules of plot seem to be moving aside right. at this point that like oh the 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 conflict is is done or is easily going to be done away with because that's something that like cutter was talking about the whole time that like she's just on the warpath um she's gonna take care of her vengeance and everything right. and it's gonna be it's gonna be done and and she's gonna take care of it but we're still following her and it's like because the book exists i as the reader and thinking these characters are going to have a role to play in that. And they're right. going to have to do something. Um, they wind up being purely passive. Right. For all of it. Like right. as soon as she kills strife with, we don't exactly know how or why or, or what happened to, to cause him to hang himself. Right. Um, but, but something yeah, happened yeah, and yeah. it's it, it's so it, it leans so heavily into this concept that this half shade character is super powered right she's dr manhattan she's superman there's why right. why try to go toe to toe there's no point yeah um, though i mean you know Unlike Dr. Manhattan as a, as a great example or Superman, you know, at least she has to make an incredible sacrifice to gain these superpowers. Like, right. The um, idea that, and that's, 
you know, would would literally any of us voluntarily sacrifice what she has to in order to gain these superpowers? Like, you know, that I think sure. feels like a central question that... And I don't know if this is now, where you're going. It's, like, here's here's my turn to, to just. The, I'm not going to be too thing. pedantic to you, Ethan. But you know, uh, Doctor Manhattan, of course, had to sacrifice his uh, corporeal being and and all of his um, previous existence. And Superman, of course, lost his entire family and world uh, in order to right, transplant but it like, to a planet where he had superpowers. But now, I'm not going to be that pedantic. I'm glad you're not being pedantic, about. but like. <laughs> Both of those men, for their <laughs> sacrifice, did gain essentially immortality, which is something that Angie Tatton certainly doesn't gain, at least in the in the way that they did. But does she get Requiem Eternum and Lux Perpetua? Um, I mean, at least in the titles of the sections of this book, right. she does. Uh, but, okay, so... Um, yeah, so that that's a point at which you see this this shift again, and I, that's sort of where I, I I'm still clinging to the hope that like, yes, we're going to have this systematization, but also I'm starting to realize that's not what this book is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I, I'm still hoping that here comes the the Justice League to keep the comic book references going. <laughs> um, that of these three at the end um cutter gideon and olivia um that they're they're gonna form this at the end and it's gonna everything's gonna come together and make sense but also i'm realizing that's this this is not that book right (laughs) um and you mentioned also that the the world at the end is more mysterious than it was at the beginning and i agree wholeheartedly with that for a lot of reasons but also i think that's kind of saying something because going back to the beginning of the book um the figuring out what's going on is a gradual reveal right right? yeah absolutely like you're you meet this character esther tall who dies at the end of the first chapter and um Figuring out what she's doing, why she's there, what's going on is a mystery. Even just to get the setting right. figured out altogether um, is is mysterious. But then the the setup for that being a mystery is like this is what's going to be solved right at the end, and it's really and not it's at least not directly. Like, sort of. Like, no, not directly. Like again, you know, the Gene Wolfe comparisons keep happening, probably partly because like uh, Gene Wolfe is my like read a different book, except I don't wanna. Um, but like, you know, in 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 a lot of in especially in Gene Wolfe's better books and uh, you know better more well done books, like you get to a point where you're pretty sure Wolfe has handed you all of the tools to figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. but it's still up to you to figure it out. And like my most charitable reading of what you just said is that the end of the book doesn't assemble everyone in a room and lay out the mystery or lay out the, the solution right. the way that, you know, 
Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle or uh, Dashiell Hammett even might have done, mm-hmm. but it has handed you sort of all of the tools and like you understand the way that this new right. world works, this this newly su- this world that is supernatural in a way that surprises even some of the characters in the book, let alone the reader. Yes. Um, I would like to think that that's true, even if it means I didn't read the end of the book right or I need to reread it. But I don't know that it is versus the idea that Mm -hmm. yet again, not to yet again beat this word to death, that this is just vibes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure which it is. And neither is inherently correct. Like, I've, I've heard, you know, there are three major podcasts that I know of that dissect Gene Wolfe novels on a, on a level that is like, much deeper than we have ever done with a Gene Wolfe novel or indeed any novel, like, you know, podcasts that go chapter by chapter or a couple chapters at a time or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, sometimes you get to a point where it's like, oh, yes, okay, here in chapter 34, Wolfe explains the thing that he did in chapter 2, but if you weren't paying attention, you'd miss it or whatever. There is that stuff, but there is also stuff where it's like, well, based on excuse me, uh, based on chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 11, and chapter 20, we can ascertain that something like blah, blah, blah is going on, but that's all, like, it could be this, or it could be this, or it could be this third thing, you know? So, mm-hmm. like, again, to I, I wasn't expecting to, I wasn't going into the set of episodes expecting to bring up Gene Wolfe as much, but, like, there is a similar aesthetic where it's, like, is there a solution? Are we supposed to figure it out? Or is it just vibes? And none of those are, again, inherently bad, but, like, it's a different book depending on which of those things the answer is. Right. And I think there's a disconnect, and it could be intentional. Um, and and I, I really want to believe that it is intentional. There's a disconnect between the reader and the characters mm-hmm. in that regard, and in general, mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that um, it, there there are a few points in the book in general where that disconnect is is noted, but certainly in the overarching plot, uh, it's present. This this disconnect that the the characters are are searching for something, and you know. They're, they're trying to solve something, but it's not necessarily the same mystery that the readers right. are looking for. Um, and that disconnect comes through. Uh, so um, I mentioned earlier when like visions show up and there's a, a um, this this one isn't necessarily as telling, but it's on um, page 67 when Olivia is having a, a vision distantly. She felt herself lurch and knew that she had grasped a railing. The vision was fragmented and indistinct as if a magic lantern were playing upon rags of muslin. She t- saw a dark interior, some unknown room. Two figures were in shadow upright or crouched, but intent always on the one who lay between them. She was pale and still and illuminated faintly as if by moonlight. Um, and so, like, you've got this... this um, vision this image that she starts doubting right. and it's it's a recurring thing uh these that she has these visions and she doubts them all the time um uh, that that there's that there's any meaning to it at all but we as the reader know there that there is right. and so on the surface that's just dramatic irony right like right. we know 
something that the character doesn't. But it's also part of this same disconnect. Um, and I think part of it comes through with something that I was... I, I, paged, I flipped back and forth a few times um, in the book to try to figure out exactly why this was happening. Sure. And I was never fully satisfied until I came to this realization that the characters are disconnected from the readers in this way, right. uh, just thematically through the whole thing. And that's um, when Gideon is um, pretending to be a police sergeant um, and deceiving Cutter. Um, and, and the reason that he does that, the reason that he wants to do that is really ill-defined. Sure. Um, it doesn't seem to have much, uh, foundation. Um, there's not really a, an end goal in mind for him, um, and, and like Cutter even has this interrogation with him when he realizes the the truth about it, and it's like why why'd you do this? Right. And Bliss's explanation there too is is still um, not totally sufficient, I don't think. Um, Sorry, did you say a page number? Uh, no, I didn't That's yet. Okay. But uh, page seventy five, um, I think, is where. Um, well, page 74 is where he turns the, the drunk police sergeant right. away. Uh, and the bottom paragraph that goes into page 75 says, It was a shabby right, turn right, to do right. any fellow, no matter how low a sort he might seem. And the shame Gideon felt only deepened his general sense of misery. So already he's feeling, like, bad for what he's done to this guy. Right. Yet he reflected as he watched the drunken policeman totter away that he was put to such lengths by dire need. By dire I mean, I guess I just... And that the means he had chosen, however dishonest, were justified by an honorable end. Honorable end. Okay, hang on. I'm going to finish my thought here. He had a duty now to Miss Tatton, and indeed to his uncle, and must keep that in sight, even if it was at some small cost to his conscience. Okay, so the the, the point of his deception, that now he's going to go to this house and pretend to be a police sergeant, and turn this other police sergeant away to pretend to be in his place is so that he can help Angie Tatton right. and his uncle and try to find them. That is really thin, right? I think it's really thin. You think there's something else because... going on? No, I no, I don't. <laughs> um I I don't think there's anything else going on. I think that's exact I think that's true. I think it's totally valid for him to be that way, but also there's a disconnect between this character and my perception of this character, um, that's a, a consistency through this entire novel. You think, um, and this is one of those instances. Um, you think his motivations th- are different from what your motivations would be? Is that what, like, if you were in the situation? Nope. I don't. No, 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 no. I think the motivation is fine. I think the the means that he chooses. Um, oh. It it it. it, it that that he he wants to to pretend to be a police officer to accomplish this seems contrived. Okay, so um, you think maybe there are lots of other options open to him other than mm-hmm. this like this uh contrivance or this um uh subterfuge yeah. that he does. You think maybe if he could if if he had just gone up to this man as Gideon as an interested party yep. and attached himself without doing the subterfuge, you think maybe 
the plot would have been the same potentially or I, something like that is that what you're saying yes i yes and i think even even if um like inspector cutter had blown him off um and been like no i've got another case that i'm dealing with i'm not going to deal with this right sure. now that it, that still would have been a more in character behavior for gideon to do um in this instance you mean but wait, i think sorry. by in character you mean if Cutter, for him not to pretend to be a police officer. Sure, but if Cutter blows him off, then it would be more in character for him to be pretend at that point, or not? No. Maybe, maybe at that point. But like um, certainly more like, in character at that point than it would have been earlier when it, he has no motivation to do right. it. Okay. Right. the The interesting thing is, though, that like the way it comes about and the way he winds up pretending to be this police officer. Um, is totally in character for him, but like that he would go about it in the first place seems out of character, sure. but it's not. I don't think it is actually out of character. I think it's just my perception of his character. Do you think? It's out of my perception of his character. Sure. <laughs> and, and I think that's part of this this disconnect that like um, I, I, I want to think is, is intentional here for the plot in general and, and everything, that the characters are doing something totally different. Sure. Um, do you think that then readers expect <laughs> if we're sort of going the charitable route and assuming that this disconnect that you're perceiving that it is intentional, given that as like yeah. our, our thought experiment or whatever. Um, sure. Do you think that this would be an attempt on O'Donnell's part to uh, sort of create characters that were more true to their historical reality in the way that like really learning about a character's historical reality can be somewhat alienating and that like you know the past mm. is a oh there's a, a foreign yes country. thank you i was gonna say i i think some science fiction author i think coined that phrase but like i think you're if right. there's if you accept the idea that the past is a foreign country that this is O'Donnell's attempt to bring forward that foreignness or that alienness is that kind of what you're what you're wondering about or what you think might be it happening? Could be. Do you have a different theory be. than um, that? Or not, are you just wondering I, sort of generally? It most I'm just mostly I'm just wondering. Sure. Um but I do think um that there's a good chance that this intention was not necessarily to create that alienation, but to emphasize, um, oh, what do I want to say? Us, um, just the, this, maybe a, a different sort of alienation, not necessarily of the past itself, but of this uncanny like sure. this is where it could be uh, a different sort of gothic sure novel um which huh. i think based on our discussion I'm, I'm ready to embrace it as like a a, a neo-gothic or whatever the 21st century equivalent of neo-gothic sure. is um like in whole wholesale but i i think um it it's it's seeking to put the reader's into that sort of uncanny where like you know there are more things in heaven and earth yeah. ratio um but like in um 
more postmodern way. Right. I, I, like, as you were saying that, the <laughs> idea that struck me was like, is this the 21st century uncanny? Um, as right. opposed to the 18th yeah, century yeah. uncanny. And one thing that I had already thought about um, that, like, su- potentially supports that notion is the idea that, like, and it was something you said, I want to say earlier this episode, unless it was last episode, but I think it was earlier this episode, the idea that um, O'Donnell is relying on tropes that we've come to expect and we've come to expect them in a certain way, but he doesn't always pay them off in the way that we've come to expect. And I guess, Mm because I think it was last episode where you talked about, like, that end of the third uh, section that we keep kind of harping on. Um, mm-hmm. But, and by the way, I, I, uh, he just, he just Roman numerals the sections. So I think it's fair to call them books um, or sections sure. or parts or whatever you want. So uh, just, just a thing I meant to mention sooner, but um, yeah. Uh, because like, again, you mentioned, I think last episode that the the normal thing would be like oh okay oh her hand her hand is is a ghost hand now um and then by the mm-hmm. end of the novel it's like oh her hand is a ghost hand because like they came up with this science tincture and uh we came up with a nope. counter tincture that like restores her hand and now it's there again or something um and like I think there are several points because there were some others that I thought of throughout the course of our discussion thus far that are almost more interesting, but I can't remember what they are right now. Um, well, but where I, I he think part of it too is you know the the big relies on villains. the ambiguity of is this yeah a novel in like a more fantasy genre or is this a novel in more like a mainstream genre where the standard trope is everything has to be explained naturally rather than Mm -hmm. supernaturally and he like relies on those tropes and even almost like the publishing of the the book i think is probably usually not in fantasy sections so much as it's in like what often gets called upmarket fiction sections but then he's like paying them off in a way that would often much more uh, especially in literally any time period five years earlier than 2022 would be relegated to the the fantasy section or the the you know speculative fiction section. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and I think um part part of it too is like the big the big villains in the story are the spiriters, right? right? Um, and you kind of get the big showdown that you expect, but it's not the with the person you would expect it to be with, and it like comes out of left field and it's also not really actually a, as big a climax as you think right. it is and like we've really only in this podcast too talked about them tangentially right. they they don't matter to the story the spiriters don't matter um that's not the conflict right. they're not the conflict of of this story like they should be right. they really should be but they're not <laughs> and that's part of this whole like removal um uh or um disconnect undermining of of that that disconnect yeah Yeah. it puts me in mind of your critique of the hunger games from 
10 plus years ago yeah. that I think has come up on this podcast before, but the idea that, mm-hmm. cause I remember the first, the first time at least that I remember you talking about this was when I was talking about in the hunger games, how annoyed I was at people who, whose critique of the hunger games was that a Katniss gets put in moral quandaries and then has them solved for her instead of having to solve them. Uh-huh. And B that she like, gets put in a love triangle that also is, like, solved for her instead of her having to solve it. Um, which I have a lot of problems <laughs> with those critiques, uh, period. But yeah. your response was that those are the stories that Katniss and the other characters in The Hunger Games, that they are in and that they are perceiving, but that's not necessarily the same thing as the story of The Hunger Games as written by Suzanne Collins and read by her readers. Right. That there are two different things going on. Mm-hmm. And I, it, you know, it's just one of those things that, like, uh, someone very smart in my life said, and then I've just, like, seen it everywhere since then. <laughs> um, uh, in, in the sense that, like, I think a lot of, especially better stories, like stories told by masterful, you know, novelists, uh, screenwriters, directors, etc., um, that they operate on those levels that there's the story the characters themselves are in and the story that you're perceiving and sometimes they're the same and you don't have to worry about it but often they're different again especially the more complex that a story is um and i think some of that might be what's what's coming up here um the other thing that i i keep thinking of and i've thought of it several times in our discussion so far is the use of what I'm going to call the POS uh, protagonist. And POS is a term <laughs> that, like, if a listener doesn't understand it, they should go ask their parents about. Um, and protagonist <laughs> is a very specific term that doesn't mean hero and doesn't mean good guy. It just means the person who is the main character in the story and the the vast majority of what's narrated is about them uh and mm-hmm. one of gene again with the gene wolf but one of his literary antecedents uh is a man named jack vance who wrote the dying earth novels which if you're into fantasy and science fiction at all and haven't read jack vance like what are you even doing but specifically in the giant the dying <laughs> earth novels what Jack Vance does is he makes his protagonist a complete POS, just a complete, terrible, awful psychopath of a person. But what that does in especially like a fantasy setting or a setting a reader is likely to be unfamiliar with, either because it's historical or because it doesn't exist and the writer is making it up or for another reason, uh, what that does is... You don't care how much the character suffers, and then their suffering becomes <laughs> revelatory of the world around them. Um, mm. So, like, you know, Vance's main characters in uh, Dying Earth often just, like, they get captured, they get tortured, they get imprisoned, but it's, like, every sequence... And Wolf picks up on this and uses it in a lot of his best work, but it's, like... Every one of those sequences, every one of those those uh, things, like, 
reveals something more about the world, and the reader is more into it for the revelation of the world than for mm. uh, the character succeeding. And in some I... ways, like, o- O'Donnell, like, he, he creates sympathetic characters, he creates characters you want to succeed, but in some ways I think he is still relying on some of those tropes where he's not interested, uh-huh. the characters themselves are interested in, like, you know, getting their their the love of their life back or getting any number of these positive outcomes, but, like, O'Donnell... Bringing people right. to justice. O'Donnell strikes yeah. me much more as being interested in, like, creating this world in which these characters exist, and they yeah. don't necessarily get to have their happy ending. I, I described the, the trio, anyway, as being totally passive. Right. Um, yes, and that's... Book, right? uh, sorry, and that's... I'm gonna let you finish, but... Uh, oh. <laughs> that's part of the reason I thought of the tropes I just mentioned. Because, like, often these characters are passive or they're made passive. And when you have passive yeah. characters, to me, that's, like, an indicator that, like, oh, the author is interested in something else. And that's that's something that comes through, I think, um, in another book, not this book, but another book that both of us have read and has not appeared on this podcast, and that's American mm, Gods yes, by yes. Neil Gaiman. Um, Shadow is exactly that same sort yeah. of character as his name would uh, describe. Um, and again, Gaiman, very influenced the, by both Wolf and Jack Vance. Yep. And again, Shadow is a sympathetic He's doing exactly character, that but like... He's sympathetic, Gaiman yeah. talked about... I've seen interviews with Gaiman where he's, or I've read interviews with Gaiman where he said, like, Shadow is a challenging character because he doesn't do anything. He just kind of lets things happen to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a, yeah, very similar. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, Similar to to Katniss in in The Hunger Games, similar to the three in in this book. And I want to point out uh, something specific in text that relates to this, too. Um, and relates to the same disconnect um, also that I think is going on thematically. So you've got a, 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 a number of times from the very first chapter on, you've got things, uh, um, points in, in the book where doors are not answered. Sure. Interesting. Right? Um, and, and so that that itself is like a frustrating of expectations. Right. <laughs> um like the door is not answered, and this comes in uh, chapter six, uh, page eighty-nine. Um, this is where Gideon has decided to to begin his deception, um, and uh, um, uh, or no, um, this is this is after he's started his dis- uh, deception. Anyway, um, but he. Uh, it says, since ringing the bell, however, he had done so twice, he had been robbed of his forward momentum for well over a minute, and it was clear that the change of pace had not suited him. Um, so the, just that the, the phraseology there, that it robbed him of his forward momentum, sure. that's saying he's he's not an active protagonist right. anymore. And to be it's clear, out of his hands. Uh, that is in reference to Inspector Cutter, specifically. Yes, Inspector Cutter, yes. Um, because uh, the previous sentence, since setting out from Frith Street, Inspector Cutter had encountered no obstacle, etc. And then the sentence mm-hmm. you quoted is uh, in reference to that, which 
I, I just wanted to point out because it's all the more interesting in that Inspector Cutter being our Sherlock Holmes analog and and uh, our our Sherlock Holmes stand-in, um, you know, his whole point, his whole idea is like forward momentum, forwarding yep. the investigation. But yeah, it does even again, and I I you know mentioned at the end of the last episode, and here we're en- nearing the end of this episode, the idea of foreshadowing and the the stuff that we were seeing in the second half of the book definitely a lot of it is foreshadowed in the first half and probably would appear more so if i Mm -hmm. reread this book but like yeah so it's it's like already uh textually or or rhetorically or prose wise inspector cutter is being positioned presumably against his will as Mm -hmm. a, a passive protagonist um right so yeah it, it it's very like i i don't want to be saying this but in some senses it's very lovecraftian too where lovecraft had all sure. of his main characters be very like men of science and men of action and then they're caught up in this cosmos of like like they get to see things they witness things that are for one thing might drive them mad or whatever but it's like the, it's very much the sense of like the setting is the main character the the uh uh world building mm-hmm. is the main character and the actual characters are used to trick you into having some sympathy for a viewpoint but like are not the point of the story it's it's a way to kind of make the reader experience the story in a different way as a character yeah. yes um yeah so like which which is in this book too like it's creating that disconnect to make you as the character feel a different disconnect right yeah (laughs) um that's more in the story right um yeah well good i was gonna ask you about that foreshadowing too um uh the only other mentioned it so as i know we're like getting close to our time the only other foreshadowing i wanted to mention was just to me like the most memorable scene in the book um Mm. and i just want to mention it purely for that reason and just like as like sort of an appreciation but the scene where octavia ends up at a seance and then uh through like this this supposed medium that you're set up to think Mm. is just like you know a, a charlatan like um we in 2022 are conditioned to think all mediums were at a hundred years ago, etc. cetera, a hundred yep. plus years ago. Um, and then like through the, the radio or whatever, you get this like information that like you as the reader are set up to know is very specifically true, true to a point that like probably no medium or related person has been documented as ever having produced. And that to me is like one of the first points where it's like, Oh, Oh, okay. Like Mm -hmm. something might be going on here. Um, though to me again on the devil and dark water front was like, to me, it, it sounded of, uh, uh, in the devil and dark water like the voices that various passengers were hearing of uh old 
old Tom, old Greg. Old, yeah, old Tom. Old Tom. Right? think so. You know, trying to make deals with them, and then that turned out to be a a virtue of, like, the ship being a a setting or something. I was like, okay, they're doing Mm -hmm. something with radio, they're doing something with whatever, especially knowing historically that, like, uh, television was invented in the 1910s or 1920s by people who were trying to create a way to perceive ghosts. You know, so it's like, it still felt like there might be a naturalistic explanation, but like, in the several weeks that have passed since I finished this book, that was like the one scene that like stuck in my mind just as like something that was like, oh, yeah. okay, yeah, that's interesting and, and you know, good or whatever. Yeah. And it foreshadows the end, and that's the main point I was making. It does. Thank you very much for coming to my TED Talk. Appreciate it. <laughs> Well, yes, we are uh, right up on the end of our time here. So um, is there anything else you wanted to mention in reference to this book before we close out? No, not other than rating it, which I assume we're going to do shortly. Yes, we are uh, going to do that because there are no punishments uh, in this first set of episodes. So, um, Ethan, I'm uh, disappointed in you, and yeah. uh, I expect better in our next pair of episodes. Um, but yes, uh, let's let's rate it. Uh, we will not rate the scotch yet. We will do that uh, in the uh, next set of episodes. But rate the book, Ethan, please. The House on Vesper Sands by Perak O'Donnell on a scale of buy, borrow, forget about it. I am going to rate this a solid borrow. Um... Because, like, we kind of danced around and flirted with, like, our ratings, I think, throughout these two episodes. Um, and I'm interested to see what you rate it. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, and I want to be very careful about this, because, A, I think Pyrek O'Donnell shows a lot of skill and a lot of really interesting stuff. And I do, like, the preview for his next novel is in the back of the edition I got of this, and I do want to buy and read that. Mm-hmm. That said, and, and, you know, I always do my thing with, like, living authors, buy their books, support right. them. Um, and I, I, so I, like, feel bad writing this a borrow. Um, and also, that said, I do think that Paracodonal is doing a lot of interesting things that we kind of touched on as far as, like, creating a narrative where I don't know what to expect and I truly don't. I can't look at the genre that this is listed under in the bookstore and necessarily know like, oh, everything's going to have a naturalistic explanation. I appreciated a lot of that and a lot of the other like trope breaking or bending and, and other things that we talked about in this book. And furthermore, to be clear, I don't need this book to be the devil in the dark water. I don't need it to have (laughs) a naturalistic explanation for everything. I also don't inherently need it to be systematized in the sense that, like, oh, it is supernatural, but, like, here are the rules of magic or something. I don't need that. I need something, though. And to me, where it fell apart in deciding not to do the two things I just mentioned it also doesn't really provide like an emotional climax or any mm. other kind of climax. It just seems like it, it kind of stops at us at whatever point. And it's like, I need something. I need some kind of 
kind of climax for the type of narrative that this is. Um, excuse me. That said, I think I did read this book in three sittings. I think in my first mm-hmm. sitting, I did read the first three parts, uh, books of this book, mm-hmm. uh, which is more than half of the book. And then I think, yeah, I, I think I've read it in three sittings. Um, which is like, for one thing is like, okay, you could borrow this from the library, even if they're one of those chintzy libraries that only allows you to borrow books for two weeks, easily read it in, in that time, let alone four weeks or, or whatever. Um, and I would say, like, my specific rec- recommendation is do that. And then if you liked this book more than I did, or you just want to see Perrick O'Donnell write a new book, which I do, uh, and you have the cash to spare, like, then go ahead and buy it. And I'm tempted to reread it. I don't know if I will before I, like, sell this one on to my used bookstore. No offense, Michael, for getting me it, but... Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, like I'm tempted to reread it just for the ending and some of the foreshadowing. I don't know if I will, but I could, like, I guess I'm saying borrow and I'm like borderline buy, but I'm still just on this side of borrow. Uh, mm-hmm. so I hope all that makes sense. And like, again, that's my recommendation is, uh, borrow as far as our tripartite, uh, system goes Mm -hmm. fantastic um well i'm mad at you because you said virtually everything i was gonna say (laughs) and my rating is also borrow um my wife read this book before i did and um when i asked her her thoughts on it her the overarching theme of her thoughts on the book was i don't know (laughs) Um, and that's that's part of of the same thing that that same disconnect that I was talking about that I, we threw around like the the word charitable a little bit yeah. in our interpretation, and that's that's part of why it's it's tending towards borrows because it requires a little bit of charity yeah. to interpret it that way. Um, so like you say, I want something more, which which seems almost to defeat the purpose of what ostensibly is the purpose uh, of, of the book um, to have something concrete, but it still needs something. Yeah. To my take was around us a little bit. And I, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but like my take was that it just kind of ended rather than climax. Yeah. And I needed a climax. Yes. It does need a climax of some sort. Yeah. Um, and that's, but, but like you say, you know, there, there's the preview to the next book um, that, Parker Donald wrote um and I want to see more from him he's he show he shows some skill yeah. like you say um so the he definitely can craft some wonderful fiction yeah and I want to see more of that so start with the borrow on this one branch out maybe his next one is even greater and blows us all away um and maybe he just and maybe that makes this one even even better um, right. in estimation. That would be ideal right. if, like, the next book shows, like, oh, yeah, he definitely did everything that you thought he did all on purpose, which, <laughs> you know, right. if you notice an author does something, Dr. Hannah's rule, like, 
give him credit for it. Right. Um, but like, yeah, I want to see, I want to see more from him. So I'm also giving it a solid borrow. Cool. Um, great. All right. Now the pairing between uh, the house on Vesper Sands and the Glenlivet Nadura. Uh, perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. Um, and uh, pairing at like the first two episodes of a, of a scotch is always like, challenging to not give away the the ending of like your mm-hmm. evaluation of the scotch i am gonna say perfect match in the sense that like okay. i think glenlivet nadura nadura uh in my head i grew up saying it nadura and so that's gonna be hard habit to shake but um it's like something i think is good that is not fully to my tastes and that's the same thing I uh-huh. would like to say about the house on Vesper Span- Vesper Spans, uh, Vesper Spans, Vesper Sands. Uh, so like, they're both very good, and the other reason I say perfect match is like they're both like they kind of shift around on you, like determining what these determining one single thing that these are within their categories, whether it's the House on Vesper Span... Holy cow. The book <laughs> we, we read, uh, or the scotch we drank, determining what they are within their specific, like, categories and even subcategories is difficult, and they shift around. And, like, I think that's a parallel between them. So I am going to say... Like, I definitely enjoyed both of them. I'm not sorry to have consumed in the various senses of that word either of them <laughs> so i am going to say perfect match nice uh i'm gonna give it a pretty good match uh, i sure. don't think it's quite perfect but it's it's pretty good um and if we had more nuances it would be uh on the more perfect side of the pretty good um <laughs> rating uh, i like how it's we a pretty pretty good we invent these scales and then we immediately rebel against them <clears throat> Of course, of yeah. course, we have to, we have, we to, have to rage against the, the cage that we. You didn't want to say rage against the machine. Self... I I wanted to, but I thought it was not appropriate sure, okay. at the time. But it's okay. <laughs> anyway, yes. Uh, so um, you you mentioned the shifting and and yes, like it, at times, it, this this scotch like the book. Um, gave me moments of clarity and also moments of confusion and um so that's you know very very similar but um i I don't know that i I don't know if i can be more specific i think there's something that it might be lacking one or the other it is is an ambiguous (laughs) um pronoun with uh who knows which antecedent whether the book is lacking or the the scotch is lacking uh, they, they're, they're not, um, they don't complete one another. Sure. I'll say okay. that. <laughs> um, so there's, there's my rating there. Very good. All right. Uh, so Ethan, um, what are we reading next time? Uh, we are reading the Sheriff of Baghdad, uh, which is written by of Baghdad. Is it not? No. The Sheriff of Babylon. Thank you. Yes, I was just looking it up because I didn't expect you to ask me this question. Uh, but yeah, we are reading The Sheriff of Babylon. Maybe I will just 
slot that in without uh, editing around myself. <laughs> um, which is the script is written by Tom King, who has done a lot of Batman and some other like mainstream superhero mm-hmm. work. Uh, but also Tom King was a CIA intelligence officer who was stationed in Baghdad, um, before he decided to retire from that and just get into, you know, writing comics, because I guess right. you can. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we're reading that next, so, which I believe will be the first graphic novel we have done as like a main episode uh mm-hmm. a work uh and yeah yes what yes, yes. uh yes. so yeah that should be interesting I, I i need to um is recant apologize fix something i said when you introduced this book okay last time at the end of Gargantua and Pantagruel, because I said that he was also the author of a current run of comics, the um, um, uh, the uh, Knights, of, Knights of Steel okay. um, books. Uh, it is not Tom King. That is Tom Taylor who writes oh, that. So okay. different, different author entirely. Gotcha. I just skimmed the name very quickly sure. and was mistaken so yeah well tom king um, has done some prominent ones he did a run of yes green lantern that was very kind of well regarded uh he did a miracle of, man yeah miracle man uh Anything? he did a run of flash that is well regarded no wait vision. Uh, vision that's what i meant by flash yeah mm-hmm. so like yeah is yes yeah. but again i think sheriff of babylon is like uh, potentially his most personal one and it's know. the it's also i think the first collaboration between him and the artist mitch jared's um and they they have collaborated numerous times since okay cool um so that's a combo that's uh that's a thing too so look forward to that uh gentle listener read along uh with the sheriff of babylon it's uh 12 issues or one collected graphic novel uh and give us your feedback uh go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org put scotch talk in the subject line and that'll uh, help us sort our mail uh, or on Twitter. You can find us at room with scotch or on Facebook. You can request to join the group, the tapestry radio tap house, and we'll let you in uh, unless you're ringing the wrong doorbell. Um, <clears throat> we'll also do your homework. Uh, we, we like doing homework. Uh, we're nerds. So go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form at the top of the page, and we will do that homework. We don't promise to do it well, though. Uh, we're just going to do it, and then you can turn it into your teachers, and we will laugh madly at you as you are hauled off to plagiarism jail. Um, also, if you like this show, check out the other Tapestry Radio shows like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual play RPG Fiasco Improv Podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where three grown men discuss the children's book series, Freddy the Pig, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast. Ethan, where are you? I'm mostly on Twitter at Bjartlett. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, I don't tweet very much, but like, if you want to tweet at me, I 
probably will see it. Great. Um, my social media engagement is very minimal, but you can find me on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And with that, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if none of what we expect to be paid off is paid off, and instead you undermine all of our expectations and give us something entirely different, and maybe it's better and maybe it's not. But other than that, we won't cry. Well, we won't cry if that specific set of circumstances doesn't happen. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.